When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. afternoon everybody it is jay scott this is the hook rocks the ultimate rock community podcast hope everyone is enjoying the holidays in between christmas and new year you're in that period right now where most people don't know what day it is you just know that uh, you've got one more holiday to go for the end of the year and start the new year we continue our holiday series with Sean Culver, a guest that uh, I've been looking forward to having for a bit here. How are you doing today, Sean? I'm doing okay. Up and uh, up, and my uh, wife is making some coffee for me, so I'm looking forward to that. Well, there you go. Get, uh, it's a, that'll help you start the day, especially when you don't That's know what, right. you know, half of the people don't even know what day it is right now. So cheers to you on the yeah, coffee. Yeah, I'm definitely in that zone. Yeah. Well, we always start out, every time we have a new guest, we start out the same way with the same question, and that is the essence of the show, and that is just like every rock song has a hook that sucks you in, every rock fan has a moment, whether it's a song, an album, a band, or performance that hooked them on rock and roll. What was it for you? Uh, boy, you know, I... I I thought about that, and uh, there are several moments, but I don't want to be complicated. I'm going to go with it's springtime or summertime. It's a warm day, and I'm sitting on the porch in Watauga, Illinois, which is a little teeny town in western Illinois, and um, and we're listening to WLS Top 40 Radio and um, Killer Queen comes on the radio and I was just stunned. I don't know how, I don't know if there's even another word. (laughs) What is this? It's so different and bizarre and interesting. And it was harmonies and, and that was it. It, you know, it wasn't that I hadn't been exposed to music before, but, um, and there are a lot of other previous moments, but that moment for some reason was, uh, 
a real cathartic moment for me. And where did it go from there? I mean, obviously you heard Killer Queen. You know, you had to find out who this band was, what you know, what other songs they had. You know, take us down that evolution of you getting into rock and roll. Right. Well, I was 12 years old at the time. So, um, it, you know, I, I would, you know, you do what you did at that time, which is, oh, you gotta go wait for it to come back on the, on the radio again. And because I was so far away from the broadcast point in Chicago, I wouldn't call in and say, hey, play that song. What was that song? I just, you know, that was a long distance charge. <laughs> we couldn't afford that. It was just, you know, the time and the technology, you know, it's like you either go out and buy the record or you wait for it to come back on the radio. So I think there was a long period where it was waiting for it to come back on the radio. And, you know, I had a cassette recorder, which was not attached to the radio. So you, know, like, you would record it through the air. Um, and then I imagine I eventually bought the single, but, you know, my my memory is kind of like not jiving with the release date. So the release date was like October of 74. And I remember hearing this in the summertime. That's my memory. And then in October of 75, Bohemian Rhapsody came out. So that was like my second shock. So I don't really know what happened between when I first heard Killer Queen, which I think was in the summer, and a few months later when Bohemian Rhapsody came out, and I definitely went and, and bought that record, and then I may have bought Killer Queen at that time. So I had, you know, 245 Queen records. What was it about Queen that resonated with you? It was... Oh, I'm going to give you... I'm a... I'm, a, I'm an artist, so I'm going to give you an, an art word, uh, iridescent. And I didn't realize that, that that was the that that was the factor until like maybe like ten years ago. I was thinking about it. I'm like, what is this? Um, I mean, obviously it was it was different, but there was something about the harmonies not just with the vocals, but with the guitars. And I, and so, you know, as I got older, I, I went in depth and I studied that stuff. And I even went, when I went to art school, I studied sound production because of that. And it was basically these layers of sound that, you know, you had one layer of sound and it would have a one sonic signature. And then you would have another layer of sound that would have a slightly different sonic signature and then the third layer, and it was like light passing through a prism. And it made, I guess the best visual equivalent would be like when it gets really, really cold out, especially like in the northern, more of the northern climate. And you look up in the sky, and the sky is full of ice crystals. And the sunlight shines through, and you get this iridescence in the sky. And sometimes it's uh, a sun dog. Do you know what a sun dog is? Yes. Yeah. So th this is how I'm, I'm describing the experience now. But back then, I, I didn't think of it like that. But it was just this, back then it was just this, it was different. 
You know, it was so, it was oddly different. It was like, you know, the melody was different. The, the harmonies were different. The, the, the arrangement was different than all of the other music I, I was listening to on Top 40 Radio. You know, once you heard this music by Queen, Killer Queen and Bohemian Rhapsody, were there other bands that, you know, that you uh, listened to? Or was it, you know, the, the, the I don't want to say obsession, but the connection with Queen was so overwhelming. Did you just, you know, want to hear everything by them? Yeah. So this might take a really weird left turn here. <laughs> so... When Barry Manilow came out with his first hit, which was uh, Could It Be Magic, he had that classical music intro. And Eric Carmen had done the same thing with All By Myself. So it was this classical music, classical piano. And Queen definitely had that in their repertoire. So... Um, I was only buying like 45s at that time. I don't think I started buying albums until I was in, well, I, had, I bought eight tracks. <laughs> Got in the Columbia Record Club and I bought eight tracks. So I bought, then I became obsessed with like Barry Manilow. And it was more because he had this like classical piano kind of thing going on. And then the Electric Light Orchestra. And then, yes. And then Led Zeppelin. So we all kind of like, but the, the, the thread was, it had these kind of classical music elements. So it was orchestration. It was like these achingly beautiful piano melodies. It had... It had almost nothing to do. I mean, I, I love the energy of rock and roll, and I listened to that. But it, it was this—it was this thing where, well, it's—it's—and I didn't back then. I didn't have the language to describe it. But it was pop music, and then it had these classical elements. So when I first heard uh, the suite. So when I first heard Action by the Swede, um, it started off with this cello. And it was just like, oh, they're using classical instruments in rock and roll. Why are they doing that? And it was just this curiosity, and that would take me from band to band to band. I would, and then I would listen to that on the radio. Now with Queen... Um, as you, you know, got deeper into Queen, what was, you know, because they're very, they have a lot of orchestral elements in their music, especially as they evolved, you know, beyond Bohemian Rhapsody, um, you know, and they were quite different as a rock band as they continued to evolve. I keep using that word. What, as they, as they moved forward with their music, how did you accept their evolution? Um, I was really disappointed with when they got to hot space. It was like, what, what, 80, 81 or something like something that. Like that yeah. yeah. And I just kind of got disenchanted, but there was a big shift in my life at that point, which was interesting because 
I was because you know her killer queen, her Bohemian Rhapsody, and then You're My Best Friend, and then Somebody to Love came out, and I was nuts. And at that point, I was buying albums, so I went back and bought like the first Queen album and the second Queen album and the third one, and the second one, which was Queen Two, was the was the one album that if I had to say through everything, the album that that stuck with me and influenced me the most, it was the second Queen album. Because it had more of that stuff. It was even more than Bohemian Rhapsody, which, you know, came a couple years later than uh, Queen 2. Um, so sorry, I, I, I don't want to get lost in a lot of, you know, verbiage here i did i answer your question <laughs> no no you, you know i was just i was just talking you know like you know how how they kept evolving because if you you know throughout yeah. rock history music history if you look at bands that you know evolve from first album and they have that arc you know to their yeah. you know to, to, to their later albums there it's very few bands i mean all bands evolve but very few bands evolve as much and in the way that Queen did. Um, right, because they were really diverse from the start. Right. So, you know, it was one track was prog rock, then it was dance hall music, then it was like a classical kind of ballad, then it was heavy metal. And, um, you know, it would just... And that's another thing that attracted me was that that wide breadth of stuff. And that also mirrored what was going on on the radio at the time. So if you look at top 40 music, if you listen to like WLS in the 60s and 70s, you would hear Eric Carmen, and then you would hear Led Zeppelin, and then you would hear Andy Kim, and then you would hear the Partridge Family, and then you would hear Neil Young, and it was just like it was like it was like skipping a needle like through a compilation album, and Queen like did that like they did that like in one album, and they were able to make it into a a cohesive thing. So I don't know as they evolved, I kind of I, I kept buying the albums, but I was just not as I was not as enthusiastic. Plus, I had left my hometown to go to art school and I was listening to other music. It was, there was like a huge shift in what I listened to. Right. So, um, and after a while I just kind of thought, Oh, Queen was a thing that I liked when I was small and it's not a big deal. And I tried to forget about it for a while, but it just kept those early albums just kept gnawing at me and then I started going back and then I started getting deeper into the early work well the, so yeah they yeah they really they really evolved and and you know the last two albums were into, and I, I just kept I kept buying the albums it wasn't that you know I, I totally lost interest it was just I was involved with so many other things in in terms of my focus and interest that it, you know, it just kind of got went to the back burner. 
And then until about like 10 years ago, when it just kind of came roaring back with a vengeance. My interest, that is. Right. You know, talking about the Queen catalog, right? I mean, as we talk about Queen and we talk about their evolution, you know, from first album to their later albums, and also inside each album has so many different elements of music in every every release that they had. One of the things that I've noticed about Queen is how top-heavy they are in terms of the casual fan. You know, the casual fan... In terms of what? In terms of the casual fan and how they absorb Queen. Because when you listen to a Queen album, you know, there's always the hits. There's the Bohemian Rhapsodies. There's the Killer Queens. There's the Somebody to Love. There's the Play the Games. There's all the hits that... Everybody is familiar with. Yeah. But when you talk to a a fan or or someone who claims to be a fan of Queen and you start to go inside those albums on those deeper cuts, I find that unlike every other band, whether it's like Led Zeppelin or the Beatles or the Stones, if we're comparing, you know, some of their contemporaries, it seems like people get lost with their deeper cuts uh, on the album. And I almost find that, disappointing because I really like that stuff you know I mean and, and, and that stuff is is it still resonates with me too as well why do you think that is why do you think that there's such a um, an acceptance of their big hits but like no virtually no interest in the deep cuts for a lot of fans you know uh, uh, of Queen yeah boy you know yeah, okay let me try and go into this. That, that, that's an interesting question. Um, well, you know, there's this, this whole thing in the last couple of years that has just gone wild on YouTube, and that's reaction videos. So I think Bohemian Rhapsody is like one of the number one reaction videos. Like, oh, I've listened to rap all my life. That's all I've listened to. I heard about the Bohemian Rhapsody. Maybe I ought to go listen to it, and I'll do a live reaction. So I jump on the I jump on the threads, and I'm like, you know, to really understand to really understand Queen, you go back to the beginning, start with the first album, and start listening, and you'll see everything that went into this. Because it's in a lot of ways, you know, if you're just throwing a skipping stone, you know, if you're just getting the hits, you're not. You're not getting, you're not getting it. And some, some of the YouTube channels go deep into it and they're like, wow, wow, wow. And they, and they, and they, they get it. And other ones just kind of like, they like move on, you know? So some, some, the ones who do investigate, the light bulb goes off. And the ones that just like, you know, well, you know, I'm a, I'm a Gen X or millennial, whatever, and I don't know about this music, and I just need to keep going. And everybody in the comments are kind of taking them down a certain path. So they're either going to go down the, you know, the Megadeth <laughs> path, or they go down, like, the Queen path, or they go down the Pink Floyd path. Um or they go down the disco path, like, what is disco? And they, I don't know, it's just, I'm probably over-answering your question, but I think, it, I think it's interesting, is that 
they either want to stay on the surface or they want to dive deep, you know? Well, it's, it's not so much, you know, in my opinion, what they want. You know, let's face it. I mean, when, when Queen is played on the radio, people are spoon-fed, you know, a certain, certain songs in the catalog. And mm-hmm. yeah, it's, you know, it, it's a rotation of like, you know, you have your four or five big hits by Queen, and then you have like your four or five secondary hits by Queen. And that's really all you get on rock radio. But, yeah, you know, when you play something by Queen that is not as popular, like if you play Seven Seas of Rye, which is, you mm-hmm. know, which is not the deepest of cuts by Queen, but it's it's deep enough people yeah. people don't know how to react to it, you know, or they don't know how to respond to it. Um, or if you, if well, you they play... Don't have a con- they don't have a context. Right. Or if they, or if you even play It's Late, you know, which is one of my favorite songs. You know, people it, are... That's like one of the most amazing Queen songs ever. And that, that song is just so amazing. It's amazing. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I absolutely agree with you. Um but it's like when people, you play that stuff, it's like deer in the headlights for most people. You know, they're not familiar with it or they're, they're completely unaware. And I think that's where, you know, when, when, I, when I'm trying to dissect this is like, you know, you mentioned, you know, Pink Floyd and you've mentioned Led Zeppelin. And, you know, of course, there's the Beatles and the Stones. When you talk about to or, or, or an average fan's, you know, knowledge of their of the catalog, I mean, I would think that mm-hmm. a casual rock fan could name, you know, ten to fifteen Led Zeppelin songs, and I can, I or or if they heard stuff that maybe is not as popular, they're at least familiar with. And I think that's the same case with the Beatles and the Stones. That even their most popular hits, or or, or even the least popular hits, are still familiar. And I don't know yeah. if that's the case with Queen. I mean, like you know, we could run off the ten. Queen songs that are played on the radio, you know, if there are, you know, I mean, let's just say 10 for, for, for the sake of the discussion. But then, like, if you play It's, it's, it's Late or if you play Seven Seas of Rye, there's no familiarity with it. It's just, like I said, it's a deer in the headlights. And I've never seen, I shouldn't say I've never seen, but it's, it's, it's odd that a band that is so popular like Queen is, and let's face it, the movie over the last mm-hmm. couple of years has has raised their their profile. But I've never seen a classic rock band who's as popular as Queen have such a top heavy, you know, song. You know, I'm trying to use the correct word, like a top, like a very like a lot of their their big hits are very familiar, and then the stuff that doesn't mm-hmm. get played is just like it doesn't resonate at all with people. It's just it's just very strange. I don't know if you understand what I'm trying well, to say. Well, it depends. I think I do. Um, it depends on what you mean by people, because that that's a very broad sure, sure. term. So it's like people of a, you know, because people listen according to how they were encultured to listen. So who we who grew up listening to albums have a diff- way different experience with music than people who are just streaming. Because there was like a, there's like, it's like a physical investment. And, you know, I could get into all kinds of like deep theory about this, 
based on what I've learned about, you know, and just studying art. But you're enculturated in a certain way. And, and in a way, if you grew up in the 60s and 70s and even 80s, there was this built-in diversity of style. And so it's not so surprising. Do you know what I mean? Right. It's like, so like what I was describing about the experience of listening to AM Top 40 radio, you know, Led Zeppelin, Partridge Family. Do you know what I mean? Right. right. It was like when you were young and listening to that, there was no discernment. There was no difference between those two, really. It's like it's on the radio. And the diverse, the diverse, whatever, the diverse expressions or the diverse intentions, you know, one may be a commercial construction and the other may be an honest, hardworking musician, you know. But and that's, that's, a, that's like night and day. But when we were listening to it, it was just a given that those that bridging the gaps between those diverse expressions was easier. We were enculturated for that to be easier. So, so if you listen to a Queen album, and you listen, you know, it's like this over-the-top choral thing, and then it's a and then it's a jangly, you know, Cockney dancehall thing. And then it's a long, slow kind of dirge with this, with these giant atmospherics in the background. It's like it, it, it had a, it had a certain, it had a particular aesthetic appeal that I had already been primed for. So I don't know if that's true of people who grew up with MTV. I don't know if that's true of people who grew up with streaming. I don't know what their experience is. I I mean, it's, it's harder for me to access that and, and answer the question for them. They have to like answer that question. So when you say people, you know, when you say we or people who listen to queen, there, there's so many, you know, it's, generational and experiential and you know it's like it's a it's a different question for each different group of people who grew up with that acculturation does that make sense yeah no it's the way people absorb music you know how how they're yeah 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 you know it's you know that there's there's i think the older generations absorbed it way differently because of the physical connection that they had with the music, you you mentioned buying the albums, you know, having the artwork, the yeah. front, you know, the, the 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 cover, you know, album of the album, the artwork, and then you know the liner right. notes and everything. So that's a way different experience than someone hitting click, download, play, you know, or click and play. Right, and, and right, and even and even buying forty fives as opposed to buying albums. Right. You know, if you were like my cousins. My older cousins in the sixties bought singles, and I think you know they bought Hermits yeah. and yeah, Nancy Sinatra, and it's like that's how they experience music. And I think we're and going... then I'm buying. Yes, I'm listening to like these long form 
I'm listening to 15 minute yes songs, you know? Right. It's like totally different. And I I think we're getting back to that as well. I mean, now we're, we're the music industry as a whole is very singles oriented where you you compare that to the 45 generation, you know, where singles come out. And I think, you know, in, in that, in that aspect, it's very similar. It's not it's still not the physical copy of the music, but it's it's very similar. Where artists now are releasing more singles rather than full length albums. Yeah, and, you know, it made it a point to talk to younger people about music, and I I pointedly asked, "I'm like, what do you what do you listen to?" Because I'm like, yeah, I'm just interested in and how they're observing music and the the most the answers i'm getting back are are something like oh whatever's on i'm like what and and i and somehow i get the feeling that that's different than me listening to top 40 you know in the 70s It, it has like a different character it's like it's like music is like it's just background it's like, oh, you know, I hear I hear this when I walk through the store, and my coworker is playing this on their on their phone, and there's like not it's there's not the same attachment as an emotional catalyst. It's like a background. I yeah because I, I, I can't yeah. even get them to yeah to like point like what well, what band do you like? oh you're listening to all the stuff in the background what band do you like and I get you know shrugging shoulders so there, there there's something about there's something about this emotional catalyst what you know your podcast is is you know the seed of your podcast is you know what was that moment what was that moment but if you ask you know younger folks today, I'm not sure that you would get, like, what is that moment? So, for example, my 14-year-old, we had my 14-year-old nephew up a few weeks ago. We treated him to a weekend in Chicago for his birthday. And his favorite song was Country Roads by John Denver. And he's, you know, from rural Illinois. And doesn't really listen to the radio. And I, I couldn't get it out of him where that came from or, or what that was. You know, there was, there was no, he couldn't, he couldn't articulate to me like why, why that stuck with him. And he didn't even know where it came from. He couldn't remember. <laughs> so it was like, it's like there's like it's like this cloud of vagueness, and even when a person likes a song, they're still like, you know, it's not like oh, I heard it on the radio and they, and they played it ten times an hour, you know, whatever. Yeah, it, that doesn't exist. So, so how does it get to him? You know, and 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 why why you know? And he's not articulate enough to to tell me. But it's it's strange. I. I call him on the phone and country roads take me home is his, is his, is, is what you hear. It's what he has for his like voicemail thing, but he can't talk about any other music. He doesn't know any other music. 
Anyway, I may have yeah, gotten off yeah, on no, 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 that's, it's, 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 But it's, it's, it's just yeah. like this experience thing. It just fascinates me. It's like, well, sure. what's your experience, you know? What was your view on the Queen movie, Bohemian Rhapsody? Um, I thought it was a piece of crap. And why? I thought it was an abs- uh, on an artistic level, it was just an absolute piece of crap. It was, it was, it was horrible dialogue. It was horribly edited. They didn't focus on what I thought was fascinating about Queen, which was their creative process and their creative output and how they did that. It's like, come on, you guys. So the the I'm sorry, I answered your question. I don't want to over answer it. Yeah, I, I, you know, I went with my wife and a friend of mine who's actually a writer and an actor. And we were sitting there in the theater looking at each other going, what the hell is this? This is terrible. Plus, I, I, <laughs> plus I picked the theater with the best sound system in Chicago, right? So we went to the Max, 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 whatever up in Evanston. And, um, and the sound was disappointing. The sound mix was disappointing, even though I guess they won a, they what, they won an Oscar for sound mixing, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and it was just the story was just kind of hackneyed, hackneyed and boring, and you know, the emotional depth was like you know, but a scratch, and it was just like yeah. I, I didn't like it at all. I was very disappointed. My biggest issue with the film was the timeline. Uh, you know, yeah, knowing that, you know, they they really focused on the Live Aid show, and knowing yeah. that he wasn't sick before that. Um, you they know, focused on what was most popular, right? And they were riding the wave of of homosexuality becoming a mainstream thing where once it was hidden, which is what Bohemian Rhapsody, the song was all about. But it's like, that was the focus of the movie. And I thought it was a little bit of a betrayal of Freddie Mercury because every time he did an interview and somebody wanted to talk about his sexual orientation, he was, he was, he, he said many, many times, I don't want to talk about that. That's not important. That's not, that's not an influence. That's not, I want to talk about music. I just want to be a musician. I just want to be a singer. I just want to talk about, you know, he was in love with music. He wasn't like in love with the political implications of being gay and coming out. That didn't exist back then. He was in love with music. Well, well, it, but it did because it, it did because it wasn't too long before that homosexuality was legalized in in the UK, and it was either punishable and it was punishable by chemical castration. So you, you if you look at Alan Turning, or if you look at Joe Meek. Do you know about the story of Joe Meek? No, I don't. Joe Meek was a producer. So a, a, lot, of, a lot of semi-experimental stuff that came up in, in pop music 
was pioneered by Joe Meek, and he built his own home studio. And he was persecuted by the British government for being gay. And he ended up, you know, he had he had mental health issues, but he ended up, you know, killing his landlady and then killing himself because of the pressure. So I'm I'm sure Freddie Mercury knew about all this, and I'm sure that that's what the song Bohemian Rhapsody is about. It's about the anguish of maybe needing or wanting to express your sexuality and having a limited venue and being or limited you know, limited thing in being able to do it. But the thing is, is that even though that was the subject, it was more about the music for him. So I don't know. I know, you know, a lot of folks might disagree with me about that, but that's what he said. That's what he consistently said. So in terms of, you know, so I, I think that these cultural changes happen very slowly over time. So from Ellen Turning, which would have been in the 1940s, to Joe Meek, which was that tragedy happened like in the 1960s, to Freddie Mercury, you know, in the early 70s. And he didn't fully like come out and express himself as like any kind of a gay icon until like the 80s, you know, with the mustache and the muscle shirts and all that. You know, before it was all buried in like the David Bowie glam rock thing, which to me was a lot was a lot more interesting, let's say, aesthetically interesting anyway. At least it was more aesthetically interesting. But anyway. Well, the music was interesting. And, you know, yeah. the, the, the movie was seemed... You know, very. It only seemed to scratch the surface on on the music aspect of it, but it seemed to more focus yeah. on, you know, who Freddie was becoming or what he had become, and it really, it really seemed to overshadow the greatness of what was Queen. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It didn't address what made Queen amazing, which was musicianship and arranging, and instrumental diversity, you know, and stylistic diversity. Yeah, you just kind of glossed over all that. Now, what were your views of the timeline inconsistencies of the movie, too? I know Hollywood has to write a script. Um, well, I knew, that, I knew the timeline pretty intimately just by being a fan. So it was jarring to me. Um, and then I was reading one of Brian May's comments on it. He's like, to all the haters out there, you know, he pointed, so, so biographical film is by necessity, um, a fiction because you have to tell a good story and you have to tell a compelling story. So, and you only have a certain amount of time to tell it in. But the thing is, is that, with cinema, there's like there's like this niche of popularity. So if you want your film to be wildly successful, you have you're you're constrained. You have to work within certain parameters to pull that off. And they did. They successfully did. They made it one of the most popular films of the year. And 
that's what they were going for. And for me, that's kind of like, yeah, I'm not interested in it being popular. I'm interested in it being artistically relevant and artistically and aesthetically compelling. I'll take a step. You know, I would rather watch Andy Warhol sleep. I would rather watch somebody sleep for eight hours in a film than watch Bohemian Rhapsody. Because it's just more, it's just more aesthetically compelling. So, you know, that's kind of an, a little bit of an extreme statement. I mean, my, my favorite Beatles song is Revolution 9. So it's like, anyway, I, I, I don't know how that connects with what you asked. I hope it does. Um, but they, 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 made, they crafted it to be maximally accessible and popular about the subject, that, about the story that they were telling, which was about Freddie's anguish with his family and being gay and coming out. That was the subject of the film. Queen was not the subject of the film. Now, Someday maybe somebody will make a film about how do you feel that you know Brian May and, and, and Roger Taylor steered the creative process? Do you think they had a big hand in that, or do you think that they, you know, gave up the creative control that they claimed that they had, but maybe they didn't? They wanted to. No, they had a lot of. Inf- I believe they had a lot of influence, and I think they wanted to tell this story. I think they, they, they had a great influence on telling the story that was told. Because they didn't want... Here's the thing. British, the British tabloids were ruthless with Freddie Mercury. And they consistently maligned him and offended him and, you know, invaded his privacy and I think that they were really, really angry about that. And they were very protective of him. So they protect, they wanted to tell this particular story. And I think a lot of it was just showing up the damage, you know, trying to mitigate the damage that the British tabloids had done telling Freddie Mercury's story. Because I knew that it affected them on a, on a deep, deeply emotional level. It made them really angry. I mean, Roger Taylor wrote a song called Mr. Murdoch about Rupert Murdoch. And it was just a vitriol against that kind of journalism. What did they do? I mean, explain that like more in depth about the British tabloids, about their, you know, their, their, the coverage of Freddie Mercury. Um, well, I don't know a, a ton about that. All I know are, are statements that, Brian May and Roger Taylor made. They were just, they were deeply hurt by, I don't know, I guess the invasiveness of them. I guess they were relentless and invasive and were constantly, you know, the paparazzi around Freddie Mercury's mansion and stuff like that. I think, and, and, and they just kept saying, Freddie Mercury is a deeply private person. Freddie Mercury is a deeply private person. I, I, I must have heard them come out with those statements like, like many, many times. And they wanted him to have the right to protect his privacy. And the tabloids were apparently constantly invading his privacy. They would get, you know how tabloids work, they get a little 
they get a little fact and they take it out of context and they make their own story. And then the public reads it and the public believes it and then they do it again and again and it just becomes, you know, in order to sell papers. So they just, they didn't like, they didn't, they thought that they were being unfair to Freddie Mercury. Now, was this throughout his career or was this was when he was going through, you know, the HIV and in in, in how that affected his life and towards the end of his life? I know. Well, I, it was I, first, it was first that was he, was he gay or not? And then did he have AIDS or not? Because those were the big, you know, those were two big trigger points for public media at the time. First, it was, you know, oh, is David Bowie gay or not? Oh, Rod Stewart, he he went to the hospital with, um, you know, and they had to pump his stomach for sperm. You know, that was in the, what, mid-70s? That story came out in the tabloids. So it was just, it was a target. So were you gay or not was a target. So homosexuality had been legalized. I don't know what the year was, but it was really late. It was like early 60s, mid-60s, late 60s, something like that. I, I could be wrong about that. So, but the, but the cultural stigma, you know, even though it was legal, still, okay, so, okay, so it's legal to be gay. Who's gay? Who's gay and who's not gay? So it's gossip. It's like this gossipy kind of thing that they wanted to focus on. And here's Freddie Mercury saying, I, I don't, you know, he had to, he was coming out in interviews. Don't don't ask me about that. What 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 does that matter? Let's talk about. I, I want to talk about the music. As he, you know, grew as an artist too, it almost seemed like his life became more isolated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he, you know, the more he the more he came out so to speak, to his friends and his family and all of that, the more privacy he wanted around that. And that was hard because he was becoming an increasingly, you know, more and more of a public figure. I mean, he was friends with Princess Diana and he was, you know, hanging out at Studio 54 and getting photographed all the time. And You know, so in the late 70s, early 80s, you know, his his visibility increased and his desire for You know, there's a tension in, in that his desire for privacy was greater. And also, too, so I don't know, yeah. you know. And also, too, he, there was also his own personal manager that caused a rift with the other members, too, as well. They felt that he was not the best influence, you know, for Freddie. Yeah. Yeah, they had, yeah. And I don't know a ton about that. Because, again, my focus was not Freddie Mercury's sexuality. My focus was the music. And my mm-hmm. focus was more Brian May anyway, because he was closer to me in artistic sensibilities. And I was more interested in Brian's story than Freddie's story. But, yeah, yeah, he had, they had problems with they had a lot of problems with management. You know, early on, they they really struggled too. 
Now with Brian May, you know, he, we could talk about his uniqueness too as well with his guitar tone and his style. That's quite different than a lot of his contemporaries that, you know, were around during that period. Right. Because, and that had to do with Brian May's musical influences, which were, you know, of uh, Hank Marvin. And because one of the reasons Brian May guitar, and this is widely known now, it didn't used to be so widely known, was that he didn't, his family didn't have enough money to like buy him an electric guitar when he was a teenager, and so he and his father built one. And that's the one he still uses today. They hand-built that guitar. And he built it to sound like it sounds. So, so that was one part, and then the second part was the John Deacon, the bass player, was an electronics engine. You know, he was studying electronic engineering. And one day he was dumpster diving and he found a, an old um, Japanese, uh, I think it was a supersonic radio board somebody had thrown away and he made it into an amplifier. He hooked it into a bookshelf speaker and it had that troubly kind of mid-range kind of radio sound. And that became like a signature with with the guitar, um, became that, that clean guitar sound. Um, so yeah, Brian May was all about handcrafting everything, and and that went into like the early Queen records. Everything was just meticulously handcrafted, like down to like the smallest element. And that's one thing that needed what it was, you know. I mean, the musical uh, scaffold was there, but the way that they expressed it in this in this highly articulate, high resolution, just kind of handmade everything, you know, down to the heart. And Freddie Mercury was doing it with the harmony. He was most of those harmonies are just Freddie Mercury multi-tracking himself, and so. You know, Les Paul, back in the 50s, 40s, 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 50s, invented multi-tracking. And then George Martin and the Beatles, you know, exploited that to, like, a great effect. And then Queen just took that, like, into the stratosphere. And other bands like 10CC and ELO and stuff, they also did that, too. But there was a time, you know, in the late, in the, you know, late 60s, early 70s, when that aesthetic just, like, produced so much amazing music. And when you it was talk, like orchestrating. Yeah. Yeah. And when you talk about Queen and, you know, each member brought their own element of influence into the band, and that's, you know... I know, I know all bands have that, right? Everyone has their own influence, but when you really dive deep into Queen's music and their catalog, it seems like they were able to mesh so many different styles into one band and create the sound and have no boundaries with their music. And that was the thing, too. They put no limits on what they wanted to do. And you can hear that from album to album. Right. And that was the real skill. So it was a real skill to turn all of those diverse 
stylistic expressions into one expression. So things like song length, the space between songs, or if you're overlapping songs, and the sequencing became like amazingly important, like extremely important. So this is one comment that I make on some of these YouTube reactions. I'm like, you know, you have to listen to a whole album because the whole album is an expression. It's like a, it's like, you know, in classical music, you had a suite. You had like, you know, you had like a, whatever, you know, like an overture. And, and then, you know, it, it went through these, through these different modes. <laughs> My musical language is, is not that great. I, I, I'm learning music now and it's just like, it's all new to me. So, but it's like they went through this, they go through this mode of, of expressions that just, you know, and they're all different, but it's, it's like under one, it's like under one, uh, concept. Stupid metaphor. Yeah. Concept or well, not necessarily even a concept, but a, it, 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 it has a, it has, I'll just say it has a unity because a concept is kind of a different thing. A concept would be, all, all songs on the album related to like a specific concept and you know like Frank Sinatra's like in the wee small hours like he had lost um, Ava Gardner he broke up with Ava Gardner in the wee small hours of the morning and that album was like has been cited as like the first concept album and it's just it's his heartbreak the concept of that album is his heartbreak and just like amazing that that happened but with queen records there wasn't really you know that the, the closest they ever got to a concept is the second album which was queen 2 and it was side white and side black so side white had kind of like this it, well they just they just had different characters boy it, it would take me a long time to articulate what those different characters were but they had different characters so sorry, I didn't mean to. I don't mean to be too pedantic about what I'm saying here, but um, yeah, I, I, and I don't know what it was. It, it was just like we have to make this album a coherent statement, and so they worked with the producer, and um, you know they were working with Roy Thomas Baker, and and um, they were able to do what the Beatles had done, which was make each album a distinct statement even though the disparate elements of each of the songs were very, very different. And I, and I don't know how they did that. And, and it's like, a, well, you know, um, this is another, was another influence on me artistically. And I think it's interesting. Um, in the 1920s and 30s, um, especially when I started coming out with like tape recording, they had um, there was a, this artistic musical form called music concrete, which is concrete music, which was they would they would take sounds or they would perform sounds that had nothing to do with each other, but they would edit them edit them together into it wasn't musical, in you know classical musical, but it was just sounds that were random, and they would. 
edit them together and they were trying to make this coherent statement with them and they were doing the same thing in film at the same time. Well, in the 1970s, WLS had this um, thing called the WLS Time Suite. Do you know what I'm talking about? No, I don't. So, on New Year's Eve, every single year, WLS would add to their time suite. So what they did was they collaged together every number one song from the inception of WLS to the present. And every year they would add like the pop, the popular songs that came on and they would edit them together in like a collage. It was like a, mon- they called it a montage and other radio stations across the country have done it too. And I've gone and I've like, found these things on the internet. They're, they're really, really cool. And it's like it's like this trip through time. And the overall concept is we're going to take a walk through time. But it's like every popular song that was in this decade and this decade, like strung together in a single statement. And Queen actually did this on an album on um, the jazz album. At the end of the jazz album, there's a song called um, All That Jazz. And as the song is doing its outro, it just breaks into the other songs in the album and just just is a montage of all the songs in the album. And then it goes back to the outro. So there's this artistic concept of taking elements that are not related and putting them together in a way that that somehow relates them. And I think that they did that with albums, and concepts was one way to do it. And just finding some kind of aesthetic unity to, to bring them together with was another way to do that. Anyway, as, as that's, a- that's one thing that I made al- that made albums unique. As we wrap up here, what is, in your opinion, the most important part of Queen's legacy? Um, I think looking at it from a, a wide lens in terms of... I, I look at everything in terms of art history and art historical culture. So they they took what the Beatles did and... They, they they made another unique body of expression with that. And what that was was this these techniques of multi-tracking combined with their unique musical expression. So um, and I hope that's not too obscure of an encapsulation, but you know, when I look, I see this thread going through Les Paul and the Beatles and like, like even somebody like, like Montovani, like Brian, they talked about Montovani all the time. Like he, he did these like syrupy kind of orchestral albums in the, in the fifties and sixties. And, but it was a thickness. It was this thick orchestrated sound and the electric light orchestra did it, and, and yes, albums like 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 
even, even if you just listen to Roundabout, it's just like, what is this? It's just like this. It goes here, because there, this here, there are reeling in the years by Steely Dan does the same thing. Goes, it just, just goes to all these weird places, but it's a coherent statement. And it's this layered kind of orchestral kind of thing. It, and it mirrors like what happens in like really beautiful lush orchestral music, classical music. And, um, and so there was this swell of, and, and they contributed incredibly, especially that second album, to that particular aesthetic and to that particular expression. And I think as time goes on, you look back at the stuff. And there are a lot of pure rock and roll, you know, a lot of rock and roll purists that just hate that stuff. And Rolling Stone hated Queen, just like, there's like, what is, what is this? What is this? And they called prog rock pretentious, you know? But for me, it just went straight to my heart. I thank you very much for your thoughts on Queen. This was very interesting and went in a lot of different directions, but it was very, uh, like I said, it was very interesting, and and uh, I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. I learned a lot today, Sean. Thank you very much. Thanks, Jay. I you know i I really appreciate you calling me and including me, and I you know I love to talk about this stuff, and I. I never get to. What an opportunity. I, I'm, I'm deeply grateful. Thank you so much. Well, once again, everybody, this is Jay Scott. That is Sean Culver talking about all things Queen. This is the Hook Rocks, the Ultimate Rock Community Podcast. We will talk again soon. And happy holidays to everybody. Thank you. <laughs> It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.